0: Uh, And then we'll get into our some more into the chapter. It's a large chapter, a lot of instruction. But uh, if you were here last Sunday, you remember that chapter 18 began with Jesus being brought into this very mature discussion among the disciples about who is the greatest in the kingdom. And uh, of course, that then turned into this multifaceted uh, block of instruction, which we're really just uh, in the beginning of. But initially, Jesus responded to their question um, not by answering who the greatest in the kingdom is, but with the initial uh, requirements just for entrance into the kingdom. Uh, Those qualifications consisting of being converted and becoming like little children. And then he spoke of greatness in the kingdom, being contingent on exuding the humility of a child. And then Jesus quickly changed gears to talk about Uh, both receiving and protecting the faith of little children, and then, of course, the dangers involved in harming their faith. He will return to that uh, again here in just a minute. He also gave instruction regarding uh, the measures um, we should take regarding those things that entice us to sin. Uh, He basically teaches that extreme sins uh, demand extreme measures. Of course, not uh, following... What he says literally, otherwise we would all be blind amputees, right? And when I say all of us, I mean all of us. Amen? Yeah. It would be a gruesome sight in the church. And then Jesus continues here. He brings the issue of little children back again. So let's look at it. If you would, um, please stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, We will be getting through verse 20 today. But you know that because you guys, you all read ahead exactly what I'm going to talk about. So, Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 10. Jesus says, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, Does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is strained? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother." If you will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven." For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your instruction. And Lord, we need ears to hear. And we pray that you would grant that to us this morning by your spirit. And then, Lord, by your grace, that you would help us to walk in um, all that you have. Lord, we thank you. Lord, like with so many things, especially as our culture is just running wild, We need to hear you. We might think we know the right course of action in any circumstance or how to view the world around us. But Lord, we need your word. So teach us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. All right. There's a lot of happy sounds in that corner of That's great. All right, back to verse 10 and 11. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven... Their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What a strange verse. So take heed means to beware, that is to be very cautious. And to not despise means to not think little of. To not think little of. So be very careful that you do not think little of those who are little Or have the appearance of insignificance or seem invaluable to you. Be careful, okay? The value of anyone is not truly determined by our evaluation of them, but the value that God places on them. And God has placed the same value on everyone because everyone is created in the image of God. But we have tendencies, right? Valuing all people equally is not easy because we're so wonderful it really is arrogance isn't it our tendency is to be partial to those we believe will be beneficial to us or not be an inconvenience to us that really is our tendency okay but really partiality is one of the great sins in the church and it has always been that way it's uh, mentioned in james chapter 2 and 3 james i think provides a great example He says, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory with partiality. What do you mean, James? For if there should come into your assembly, that is your your gathering, your church gathering, a man with gold rings and fine apparel, a rich man, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place and say to the poor man, you stand here or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. So let's, let's substitute the word for poor with little child. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel... And there should come also in a little child. You pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place and say to the little child, you stand here or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the little children of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who loved him? But you have dishonored the little child." Well, little children might not be among those that you think less of. So put whoever does in that space. You get it? So let your minds wander to whoever it is or what kind of people it is that you have a tendency to think less of and then put them there in the passage and hopefully you will feel the sting intended by it by James. Amen? James then follows this up in chapter 3, verse 17. He says, The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, and it's full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. We have to be careful to understand that God sees those that we lightly esteem as our equals. And his perspective, as Jesus is talking about here, is the one that we are to adopt. He's demanding that. And the implication is that there is great danger for not thinking big of those who are small in our eyes. As Jesus says, he says, beware. Well, what's the danger? Why should we be so cautious about thinking little of them? Well, he says, because in heaven, their angels, T-H-E-I-R, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. How many you guys have read that and thought, what does that mean? I don't know. I just don't know. Uh, I do know that many commentators have gotten a lot of mileage out of the text and uh, historically all kinds of extravagant ideas have come forward about you know, guardian angels and how exactly they provide security for children. All of which is not really in the text, it's just not, it's not there. Um, I suppose... Uh, That Because the text says that these are the children's angels, the possessive pronoun is there. But what it entails, it's just not explained in the text. What exactly these angels do for the sake of the child in the presence of God is not stated. It's just not. We have as a warning not to think little of them because their angel always stands before the father. They do have the father's ear. Um, But I don't know what that all means. Is that okay? Yeah. Now, I think the gravity of the issue is a little more intensive because Jesus could have just said, beware that you don't despise the little ones and then stop there. That should be enough for us as his people. But he didn't. He adds the comment about the angels as a part of the warning, which implies that the angels or the father to whom the angels report is the source of danger. Okay. And then he says, he follows this up, he says, because the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Now, that's an interesting statement as a follow-up, okay? Don't despise the little ones because of their angels and because I've come to save that which was lost. The statement implies that little children who have not yet believed are lost and that angels have something to do with aiding the salvation of the child. Now, I Believe I can say that much because it's it's supported elsewhere um, in Hebrews chapter one verse fourteen. Okay, speaking of the angels, the author says, and they angels are are sorry are they angels not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? And later Jesus says that of such concerning children is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, the angels it seems, have been sent out to serve those who will inherit salvation. You get it? All that that entails, it's, it's, it's happening. It's, it's going to work itself out, and um, I think that we should be careful uh, with our treatment of those that we think less of, those young in the faith, and especially those in their formative years uh, as they're coming to faith. If we're not cautious, we should definite. we should be looking at it. Amen? Let's look at Jesus' illustration that follows. He says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is strained? If you should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. So as soon as the shepherd becomes aware that one of his sheep are missing, his priorities immediately change. His concern for the the, the flock goes away, and all he can think about is that one sheep. How many of you guys have ever lost track of your child in the forest or in a crowd of people? And you panicked, right? And the only thing you could think about was worst-case scenario, right? Instead of being calm and collective, you overlook the child standing next to you. Yeah, because you do. You, you just lose your mind. Yeah, I have. Uh, not as I haven't lost track of my children as bad as some people in the church, but I'm not allowed to say who it is or what happened. (laughs) You should never leave the state without your children. That's that's all I'm going to (laughs) say. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So that's the heart of the Father. That's the heart that we should adopt. And then we'll just never have to worry about Jesus' warning. The, the, The vulnerable among us have God's careful and close attention. This isn't something new that Jesus is bringing up. It's consistent throughout the Old Testament. Uh, It's it's the heart of God and always has been. Uh, When we turn to the Old Testament, um, you just find this God who is very protective, very zealous for those that are weak, like widows, orphans, children in general, and foreigners who are traveling through. Psalm 68, 5 says, God is a father to the fatherless and a defender widows for this reason he says woe to those who declare unrighteous decrees who write misfortune which they've prescribed to rob the needy of justice and to take what is right from the poor of my people that widows may be their prey and that they may be and that they may rob the fatherless what will you do in the day of punishment and in the desolation which will come from afar to whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your glory isaiah 10:1 Again, he says, and I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord Malachi 3, 5. Now, it's important, uh, of course, to point out the, the, the textual, the historical context in these passages regarding the poor and the needy and the foreigner. I've made errors in this regard myself, thinking that the poor and needy in Scripture are equivalent to our homeless population today, and that those you know, illegally crossing our borders are the same as aliens in the Bible. Uh, they're not. First, the needy and the poor in Scripture were among the covenant people. In the old covenant, they were Hebrews. In the new covenant, they're Christians. And everyone in the covenant community was required to work if they were physically able... But unwilling to work, they were forbidden provisions, like food. Second Thessalonians 3:10. Foreigners crossing Israel's borders, they were actually merchants okay, who uh, traded wares and goods in North Africa to the Middle East. Uh, they were shown hospitality as they passed. They were required, the Jews, to show hospitality to them as they passed through the country, but they were not given residence in it. Foreigners had no inheritance in the land. So we have to be careful with how we, you know, view terms and concepts in the Bible. We cannot apply them, you know, universally because that would depart from God's intent. The question is, how do we as the church minister to the homeless today and to those who are in our country illegally? Well, that depends. And it's not for discussion today because it's not in my text. But it is a discussion that I would like to have and anyone that's involved in any kind of ministry with them should be grounded biblically and theologically. Because really, if the scriptures are not consulted and abided by, those communities will be further injured by us. And you read into my implication there. Further injured by us. Okay. So all that to say, you know, God is highly interested in, he's protective of those that are vulnerable, among us, so we should be very careful with how we view and treat them. So thus far, in Jesus' instruction, he's warned us not to sin against those who are vulnerable, but to receive and to protect them. But then he shifts gears here to talk about a brother or sister in the church who sins against us without repentance. Then what? What does Jesus, who is head of the church, what has he prescribed for such an occasion? Now. I've been in ministry. I've been in senior ministry for 17 years. Uh, I was in youth ministry for three and a half years before that. And I've encountered volumes of people who have really their own way of doing what Jesus is about to talk to or talk about. And they know better than Jesus. And whenever I've taught or followed these instructions, those people are always there to correct me, not with the scriptures, but with their emotions and their opinions. I've had people come to me and Argue with me, tell me that I'm ungodly, that I'm cruel, that I'm unbiblical, and and I say, well, actually, I'm just following Jesus's instructions. I'm not trying to be unmerciful. I'm just trying to be obedient. And they say Jesus would never say something. So I open the Bible to them and I say, well, he says it right here. And they go, well, I just don't, th-. or I just don't think you did it right. Well, why do you think that? Well, because they didn't repent. Well, it's it's not a it's not a magic potion. It's just That's the process. That's the process. It's not me, really. They're trying to correct. It's the Lord. They just don't like the course of action. It's very emotional for them, but they're forgetting that it's also emotional and painful for me and the others that have been involved with it. And so because of the pain involved, uh, we often want to take a different course of action. But you guys, we just don't have the prerogative to do that as his people. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord and you don't do the things that I say? No, the truth is if you refuse to obey Christ... He's not your Lord, Uh, you are a Lord unto yourself, and you get to call your own shots, but in the church, which belongs to Christ alone, he is Lord of the church, he's its head, we must follow his instruction. It it doesn't mean that it's easy all the time, it's just right. Now I realize also that we were in this text recently because of circumstance, so for many of you it will be review, it will not be review for some other people, Uh, so please bear with me. Uh, Repetition is the greatest teacher, by the way, and uh, this is very pastoral in nature, um, but I have to keep up on it for many reasons. It's just we live in a messed up world. Also, uh, then beginning next Sunday, I'm planning on uh, leaving the text in Matthew to explore really the greater scope of Jesus' instruction here, as it applies differently to different kinds of sinners. I'm going to do a textual series. We're not gonna put any banners outside, nothing like that. It's not a topical series on how to be your, your, your best self or whatever. It's gonna be an exposition on various passages that expand on this particular subject. We'll look at how Jesus' instruction applies to heretics. That's false teachers who teach dangerous doctrines. And then we'll see how it applies to those in the church who become divisive. Also, we'll see how it applies to pastors and elders who fail theologically or morally and what measures should be taken to protect the church from them. That's all stuff that you guys need to know because if I go rogue, something's got to happen, not based upon how I think it should happen or you, but how the scriptures instruct us, amen? I, with the rest of you, have to mind my P's and Q's, okay? So what do we do? Yeah, so what Jesus teaches here is modified later, not by me, but by the Holy Spirit, and it's modified depending on who the sinner is, okay? Different people and different kinds of sins get treated differently, okay? The nature of the instruction doesn't change, but we might say that the amount of tolerance does depending on who the sinner is and what the sin is. The text before us uh, applies more specifically to those who are not in spiritual leadership. The greatest tolerance is shown to them. And then it comes down to people like me and the elders, where there's almost no tolerance. And that's the way it functions in the church. Okay? Also, the sins that we confront are doctrinal and theological in nature. They are moral, spiritual, or ethical. We don't confront opinions. We don't confront preferences, biases that we disagree with, uh, or things that there can be no answer to. We don't address personality. Uh, we confront violations of Scripture. Okay? Now, as I said a number of weeks ago when we looked at this passage, this process is happening all the time at Calvary Chapel because it's filled with sinners like us. Okay? And the church that is always doing this, it's a sign of a healthy church. I know you're thinking, well, a healthy church is a church that just doesn't sin. Exactly. When you find that church, please report. Okay. But for now, you're stuck here. And, uh, and so it, it should be happening because sin happens. It should be happening because Jesus instructs us to happen. And it should be done properly with humility and grace and uh, with the intention of restoring people if they will be restored. Right? So it's not just the, the person... Addressing sin, that should it's the person in sin that should be humble, right? Okay, so let's take a look. He says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Moreover, if your brother sins against you. Now, real quick, I think it's worth pointing out. Um, what if they didn't sin against me? Um, what if they sinned against A non-believer in the community? What if a believer sinned against an unbeliever in the community? Should we let that lie? Are Christians allowed to be ungodly outside the context of the church? You're going to have to look real hard for that in the scripture. It's just not going to happen. And so, no, that should be addressed. But what if the the sin doesn't involve me at all and they're not being confronted? Then what? Yes, they should be confronted. Uh, I've had people say, this is none of your business because I didn't sin against you I go, well, you're missing the point. Jesus' instruction in Matthew 18 is just general. It's just an outline. And then I turned to 1 Corinthians 5 and said, here it is. And the context is the (laughs) same. So I'm confronting you based upon what you've done. The context exactly doesn't matter, but you've transgressed, you've you've sinned. Besides, the person that is with you is not going to confront you because you're sinning together. You understand? So they have to be confronted. Also, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry about that. These instructions are not here to give us a chance to get back at someone that has upset us. You think, well, who would do that? I'm not going to give you a look. Li- okay. Jesus isn't talking about petty sins so that we can retaliate in a serious way. We don't have just scales when people offend us, do we? We don't want you know, e- equality in that, you know, a just uh, sort of, because what we really want is punishment but a just restitution for the offense. We want to go to the extremes because our feelings have been hurt. That's not okay, okay? So Jesus isn't talking about petty sins. Jesus is addressing more grievous sin that places the, the, the person in spiritual danger. It's, it's that their sin and the danger in them that should concern us and drive us to go to them. Also, these instructions, uh, and we've said already, they're broad in scope. It applies Whenever there is grievous sin, even if a believer sins in isolation and no one else is directly involved or sinned against. And so the point of all this instruction is that it's the responsibility of other believers and the, and the church as a whole to keep Christians accountable to Christ and His Word. And if you are a believer, that is something that's in your heart. Amen? You want to abide in Christ. You want to follow His Word. And when you're not... It, Deep inside, you want somebody to come along and say, hey, what are you doing? What's going on? You want to get in their face in a humble way. It should be happening all the time because we love God, we love each other, and we want to keep people on good terms with the church, with Christ. So when another believer in the church sins against you or sins against someone else, sins alone, if you will, it's our duty, Jesus says, to go to them, how? Alone alone and show them their fault. Because we want to conceal a matter if we can. We want to save face if we can. We want to protect them if we can. We want to let them repent and be restored in private if we can, okay? If possible though, when it's safe and responsible, the matter should be dealt with in private between the two involved. So when would it not be safe, when would it not be responsible to have an offended person confront their offender. Some examples, how about an abused child? Well, listen, sorry, you got to go back and, and confront the abuser. No, that's, that's not what we do, okay? Uh, sometimes that is, is not safe, it's not reasonable, we shouldn't require it. It's also inconsistent uh, with Jesus' instruction about protecting the vulnerable, amen? Okay. Also, uh, something that we're very careful about here at Calvary Chapel is, you know, opposite sexes. They don't need to be alone uh, in that kind of thing without some serious oversight. Amen? Or other accusations can be made. Who knows what can happen, okay? But when the vulnerable are not involved, the offended person must go to the offender alone. So what kind of sins against us as individuals would necessitate a confrontation? Well, slander is one because, you know, when you slander a hum- another human being, you're slandering the image of God according to It's an offense to them and to, and to God himself. It should be confronted. Any kind of malicious gossip, everybody loves a malicious gossip. That's sarcasm, sin. Uh, the disclosure of private, intimate, sensitive information, theft, lies, faithfulness to a spouse, any immoral behavior, amen? We're not our culture, we're the Jesus culture. Not whatever that, is that a ministry? or a music thing or something? Whatever it is, ignore what I said, okay? And then Jesus concludes verse 15 with the intent of the confrontation. If the offending person hears, that is if they heed and repent, he says, you've gained your brother or sister. Gaining our brother or sister should always be the motive with confronting a sinning believer. If we're super offended by what somebody has done to us, we need to check ourselves first. Because if if we remain offended, insulted, we will want blood. You get it? So until we can go to that person with the desire to win them for for reconciliation, and we could call this the ministry of reconciliation. If our goal is not to win them over, to gain them, uh, we need to either hold off or we need to get somebody else involved. We gotta be careful. And there's something interesting there. I think about the word win or gain. It's the same. You define it or translate it both ways from the Greek. It suggests that because of the person's sin, they are somehow lost or, or losing. They're, they're out of true fellowship with Christ and the church. They're missing out. There's, there's a problem, and, and they need to be brought back. Sin always damages fellowship, and the only way to restore it is through repentance. Verse 16, But if he will not hear, that is, he will not heed and repent, Jesus says, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So if the sinning believer, brother or sister, will not not heed and repent of their sin, then we have to step it up. We have to bring in with us one or two other believers. And I would encourage you to bring somebody who is mature and biblically informed, Okay, for a number of reasons. First, having other people come along, it puts pressure on the unrepentant person to impress upon them the serious nature of the matter to influence their repentance. And they're also there to be witnesses to whether the person repents or they refuse to repent. That's why they're there. But they're also there to confirm whether or not the matter is actually legitimate. Actually legitimate. If the witness or witnesses join in the confrontation only to discover that the offended person is being petty or lying or just seeking some kind of retaliation, the witness or witnesses, they can then mediate or confront the person who claimed to be offended. Now, I bring it up because sinners complicate things. Offended people are not always that objective. And on a number of occasions, I've been brought in as a witness only to find out that the offended person has not been sinned against, but their feelings have been hurt, or they're seeking vengeance, or something else that did not you know, justify uh, the confrontation. Uh, trust me, I have, I've been involved in some doozies. And then through investigation, and then asking questions, it's like, are, are you kidding me? Are we really doing this right now? And it just turns out to be somebody is upset, somebody's feelings are hurt, and we have to, they just need to forgive. How many guys have had your feelings hurt by somebody because you were just overlooked or they didn't say hi to you? I always wonder when I'm driving down the road, and you know how sometimes you cannot see into people's cars because of the light, the way the lighting is? And you just can't believe that they didn't wave at you? You get it, right? We are sensitive, we're so mature, and we can build on stuff, we can get worked up over nothing, and then we want blood. We have to be, we have to be. So that's the benefit, one of the benefits of witnesses. They're essential. But what if the witnesses confirm that the sinning believer refuses to, and if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So if the sinning believer refuses to hear and heed the call to repentance by the witness or witnesses, man, the matter has to go to the church. And if he won't heed the church, he is to be to us like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, those concepts need to be defined in their historical context. I once was in a I was in Bible college, and one of the instructors was saying, well, how did Jesus treat heathens and tax collectors? He totally leaves the context uh, to be super spiritual, and uh, then what ends up happening in his way of thinking You abandon all of Jesus' instruction. No, the historical context is the meaning of the text. Amen? Okay. A heathen was a Gentile, an unbeliever, someone outside of the covenant. And so, therefore, they were outside of the covenant community and all of its privileges. A tax collector was a Jewish traitor to the nation, okay, and to the covenant community. So, how were unbelievers and traitors treated in that culture? Well, heathens... Unbelieving Gentiles were excluded from the religious context of the covenant community by the law of God. You understand? By the law, they were forbidden by the law of God. Tax collectors, because they were loyal to Rome and because they were ripping off their own countrymen, they were both religious and social outcasts. They were in violation of God's law because they were utilizing unjust scales, you read what God says about those who use unjust scales in the Old Testament? It was a punishable crime, and we're talking corporal punishment, okay? It was a big deal. So according to the law, they were excluded. So Jesus is commanding his church to exclude an unrepentant sinner from the fellowship and privileges of the church, so much so that all believers are forbidden to eat or even speak with the person. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 and 11, and then 2 Thessalonians 3. We'll cover those in the next couple of weeks. Maybe one Sunday, maybe two. So after three attempts have been made to win the unrepentant person without success, they are to be excluded from the fellowship. Now, there's another problem here because what often happens is when that person is excluded, some people in the church go with them and they sympathize with them. Well, Paul says, look, we must, the whole covenant community must exclude them so that they'll feel the weight, the gravity of what they've done. And then they'll want repentance. They'll be outside of fellowship. That the goal is to to get them to understand the church is right and I am wrong. And the only course of action that I should take is to repent and be restored to the church. But you guys know how you are and how sinners are. All we need is one person to make us feel justified, right? I got one person on my side. Well, those people that sympathize with the sinner do not obey Jesus' instruction. They have to be confronted because now they are sinning against Christ the church. And and this, this gets heavier in the text as we go. But the gravity of that, they're missing it. Guys, we can make things so messy, amen? Jesus prescribed something in order to win people and then we get in the way of it. It's foolish, it's ungodly. We must maintain the course if we want, if we desire the results that Jesus desired. Now, as far as the, the execution of this final step is concerned, I have only brought someone's sins to the church twice in 17 years. It doesn't happen very often, praise God, because it's by far one of the most difficult things in ministry to do. The vast majority of people are restored through repentance in the first or second step of the process, okay? And again, the process is happening all the time here at Calvary Church. It's a good thing. Jesus continues. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, Jesus is using terminology from his, cult, from his religious culture that everybody understands, okay? Binding and loosing have to do with forbidding and permitting, or we might say in the context, including or excluding, okay? So in keeping with the context, Jesus is granting to the church Heavenly authority to forbid unrepentant sinners to fellowship with other believers and to permit repentant people back into the fellowship of the church. He is granting the church the authority to do this. And whatever decision the church comes to, and let's be careful with this, whatever decision the church comes to in accord with Jesus' instruction, Jesus, or rather, heaven will ordain it, heaven world. God will support the church's decision when they make it in accord with his instruction. If we deviate from or we violate his word, it makes me nervous to think that we would lose the backing of heaven in a course of action. You get it? He says, again, I say to you that if, if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, as we say all the time in biblical interpretation, context is king. Context is king. So, if, uh, if two of you in the congregation get together, and you ask God for a Lamborghini, do not expect it, okay? Do not expect it. We're going to keep our focus on what Jesus has instructed, right? It's whatever they ask in, in the context of inclusion or exclusion of a sinning believer. God will honor that. You get it? That's the context. If the church embraces the repentant sinner through this process, God will embrace them. And if the church excludes the unrepentant sinner, God will exclude them. All of the, the privileges of his grace will be cut off. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul comes to a place where he says, I, he says, deliver that person over to Satan. Man, that is the freakiest thing I've ever heard. So what they do is, the idea is, is they get removed from the privileges of the covenant. In it. They get placed outside of that and they become subject to the enemy of our souls. So we have to be careful, amen, when we take this course of action, when we do these kinds of things. He says, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Poor mom. I never feel bad for the baby. It's always the mom. All right. So whenever the witnesses have come together to include or exclude a sinner in accord with Jesus' word, he is also there in support of their course of action. We notice that there's at least three levels of authority involved in this process. It began with the church, right? If they refuse to hear the witnesses, tell it to the church. And if they won't hear the church, let them be to you as a heathen or a tax collector. So the church is that that, that initial level of authority. The next is the Father. And then finally, it is Christ who is head of his church. This is a big deal, you guys. Now, I know that people use this verse to say that, you know, where two or three are gathered in Christ's name, that it makes up a church. Well, that's not in keeping with the context, nor does it agree with the rest of the New Testament teaching on, you know, the subject of the church. We call it ecclesiology, okay? Two or three believers together may constitute Christian fellowship, but it's, it's, it's most certainly not a church, okay? These words of Jesus belong to the instruction and the context. So there we have it. There's Jesus's... Uh, general or initial outline in regard to confronting, recovering, or removing a sinning brother or sister. Next week, we'll look at divisive people within the church. I got to say, it is so rare here at Calvary Chapel. And it's not because I get involved. It's because you guys spit them out. The, the, the church here is so healthy that they either repent or they see their, themselves on down the street. I, it is such a blessing to me because divisive people are absolutely destructive, and, uh, but the community here is so well polices divisiveness. I'm just, it's such a blessing. Uh, the other one that we'll talk about is those that, that either from within, as Paul says, to the elders in Ephesus, or it comes from without, those with dangerous doctrine. They, they get a, a special treatment, and we've had many of those over the years, and again, it usually doesn't come to me. It's usually stopped by somebody in the church and they make them feel very unwelcome. So way to go with that. Uh, because we have too many little ones here that should not be exposed to that kind of crazy doctrine, okay? And then finally, we'll look at the, the procedure, if you will, of if myself or one of the elders uh, fail morally or theologically. And how does the church protect itself from those kind of, it has to be done. All right? All right, well, if that's new to you, I believe that over the next week or so, uh, it'll become more clear to you. If you have any questions about what I've talked about, um, this is important. I would love to engage with you, and um, we'll go from here. All right, go ahead and stand up. We'll pray. I, I love this particular doctrine. Uh, it, it gives me a sense of sobriety, uh, the gravity of all of it, but it, it says that that everybody in this room, myself, the elders, of course, the little tiny children, we don't kick them out of the church yet. Okay, we, we wait a little while. But we all are accountable, amen? We're all accountable. And we want to be accountable. We want to. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, what really does it mean that you're the head of the church? Lord, I believe that the reality of that needs to just dawn upon us more. What is it, that the Lord of our what is it to call you king So, Lord, I pray that you would take our hearts and our minds, and as Paul says in Romans 12, that you would 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 transform them, that they would be like you. We would be biblically minded, spiritually minded. And, Lord, that together we would walk more closely by the instruction of you. Help us to do it with grace, humility, Lord. Uh, We're not a police state, but we must police ourselves. So help us, Lord, and uh, help us to grow in your likeness and all. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.